Now I'm going to take the text for the reading of the text for the preaching this morning from Job chapter 9. And now as we remain standing, hear the word of God. Beginning at verse 32 and verse 33, Job says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we consider this text of a man that you inspired with your Holy Scripture, but in a life circumstance that none of us can even fathom, and yet your grace was upon him and sustained him even in the darkest of his trials. And as he longed for a mediator, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts this day to see the one who was his mediator. That we might see Jesus. That we might know more of the mystery of godliness in this hour. And so turn to him in all of our trials and in all those dark seasons of life to see there is great joy behind it all. So this day, may we see right into eternity, and may we be governed in the sight of glory in all that we live out here upon this earth. So each day, may we interpret it in the light of glory. Each day, may we live it in the light of eternity. And may so we lay up for ourselves treasures there and not here on earth, where our time is short, and yet for all of eternity we have to spend with you because of the very work you have done for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. You may be seated. Job was in one of his really dark moments, and in this very valley of the shadow of death, he felt the need for a mediator. A mediator is one who can relate to two parties in a dispute or a problem. He must be able to touch both sides in order to bring the two together. He addresses the needs and concerns of both. The sin problem between God and man is so great that man cannot approach God in a sinful state and God cannot simply excuse man's sin by an act of will. In fact, Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. And that is our problem. That is our biggest problem, that our iniquities have separated us from God, that God will not even hear us. We do not even have an audience with God. God is not a man with whom we can dispute face to face. He is not a man that we even have an audience with. And at the moment of Job's despair, he understood this, and he felt helpless without a way to bridge the gap between himself and God. He longed for someone to take up his case before God, to come and be the advocate to to mediate for him. And in a moment of despair, he lamented that there was no mediator who could 
put both his hand on himself and on God and bring some peace to the situation and to his own soul. That's exactly what a mediator does. He is able to touch both sides of the dispute, both people and parties that are in this, and address the concerns from both sides. For man, our need is drastic. Our need is immeasurable. We cannot approach God on our own. We do not have an audience with God. As for God, His his concerns are absolutely inflexible. He cannot merely excuse or look away from sin without jeopardizing His own righteousness. And so therein is a dilemma. As long as God is God and man is man, there must be a mediator between them to bring reconciliation. So what kind of a mediator is needed to to bridge this gap between God and men? And that mediator, and the only fitting one that would be qualified to do such, would be both fully God and fully man. Fully God that He can address the very concerns of the inflexibility of the righteousness of God. And He can touch the need of man and being able to address His greatest need. And apart from such mediator, there is no hope for man. There is no hope for man. There is only one name under heaven whereby men can be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, without a mediator, there's never any hope for man. There's nothing for man but left for the eternal satisfaction of God's justice, of which God is obligated. And because God loved us, He sent a mediator. Now, from God's perspective, without this mediator, he's none worse for the wear, if I can use a human expression. He's none worse off. God doesn't need us. But from our perspective, we desperately need a mediator. And if it had not been for the love of God toward us and a desire for his own glory to be manifested to us and through us to a watching angelic world, there would be absolutely no hope for us. But that's exactly what God did. He sent Jesus. The perfect mediator who is both God and man. And that is what Paul says in his pastoral epistle to Timothy and 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's a mystery of godliness. He says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 
And in those two verses that Paul gave this young pastor, Timothy, who was ministering at Ephesus, they contain the most mysterious truth we have ever been told and the most profound reality we have ever experienced. That God was manifest in the flesh. Therein is the secret to godliness. Therein is the mystery. And God was manifest in the flesh to become one mediator between God and men. And how do we know him? The apostle would say, the man, Christ Jesus. That's who he is. As we consider this Christmas season, who is this Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what we are looking at. So difficult is this mystery of godliness to comprehend in our minds. It is quite impossible to understand. As one writer says, it defies explanation, but it demands belief. What we know from these two verses, and and more fully expressed elsewhere in Scripture, is number one, that Jesus was fully God. The second thing, and this is where it gets really difficult, is that he is also fully man. And the challenge is when we know that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man, therein with those two truths becomes the mystery of godliness because the third truth is that those two natures are completely inseparable, but they are distinct and they are united in one person. A mediator. The mediator. These two natures, his deity and his humanity, these two natures are not mixed together. They are not to be confused. They are distinct, but they are in one person. God and man did not come together to form some third other. He is fully God and he is fully man in one person To be the mediator between God and men. And this Jesus, who is the mediator, the mediator between God and men, he would be perpetually now man and perpetually God without destroying either of the other characteristics of the nature. This is very mysterious to us, and that is why it is profound and something that we will not comprehend. He is both infinite and finite in one person. He is both omniscient and limited in his knowledge in one person. He is both omnipresent and confined to a human body in one person. That's why when you're reading the Gospels and you're reading along and it says, you know, that no man knows the time or the season, not even the Son of Man, only the Father has declared it. You say, well, I thought Jesus was God and fully omniscient. He is, but he's also man and limited in knowledge. And you come to those passages in the Gospels where you're reading about the reflection of the very nature of his humanity, and you scratch your head because you know he's also God, and you scratch your head. Well, how can he be, and how can he be? Both fully in one person. This is a mystery. 
It defies explanation, but it demands belief. Yet while these truths are to us at some level completely incomprehensible, it is exactly what is needed for our mediation. It's what we need. We need a mediator who can put his hand on both parties and settle the dispute. He can put his hand on God. He can put his hand on man and he can settle the dispute. This is what Job longed for. This is what we all need. Having decreed this very thing from the very beginning, God began to reveal to fallen man what he was going to do. But in order for man to comprehend at some level his even need for a mediation... Because in man's mind, and we are so fallen and corrupted in our fallenness that we do not glorify God, neither were we thankful, but we suppress the truth in our weakness, in our sinful minds and depravity. But in order for us to comprehend even a need for this mediator and to see God in this ultimate fulfillment... He worked through man's history and he began to show us, mankind, several things through the working out of his providential history among his people, redemptively showing us who would be this mediator. So he began to reveal through providential history man's problem in living apart from God and he needed to reveal this to man. Man, here's your problem. Secondly, he began to reveal man's need and longing for his soul for God. Look, you have an emptiness in your heart and you got a problem and you can't solve this. And this is really what you're longing for. Third, he began to show man his utter inability to remedy the problem for himself. And you can just begin to see history beginning to to reveal these truths and why special revelation of what we know as the Word of God was built through over a thousand years of historical, or is at least inscribed over many thousands of years, but it was written down from about 1444 or 1400 to about, so about a thousand years the Old Testament was written, but it inscribes all of human history in revealing the very special truths of what God was doing to show man who he is and what he needs. So God, in this historical redemptive work, begins to show man's complete dependence on God to provide salvation and his wholeness and his restoration that man himself needed, but man himself could not achieve. Who is God that I can have an audience with him? Echoes the words of Job. It also begins to show the way that God is going to fix the problem, how he's going to address the dilemma. And he's going to do this through a mediator. And God begins to show that. We are first introduced to the seed of the woman who would repair the problem in crushing the head of the serpent. But we were beginning to get just a kernel of the truth. And throughout the rest of redemptive history, up until the time of Christ, we are learning all these lessons. And we're beginning to see how God was going to repair the problem. And the reason He did it was to show His glory. The reason He did it was for His own glory. And the reason He did it was ultimately for that. 
so that He can leave righteously some people in His wrath and eternal damnation without doing any distortion to who He is or His properties or faculties or characteristics or attributes. Because if He left us all in damnation, He would be equally as good and just and gracious. See, There is no injustice or unfairness with God at all. But how thankful we are that He chose some not to receive that eternal damnation and to have the delight of seeing His grace and glory and His love of which we did not deserve. And see, that's what the history of the world has been all the way up into the time of Christ. The entire history of every nation and every people and every tongue has been entirely to show forth the very work of God in bringing forth this mediator that we call Jesus. Showing this, these things to man in order that Man might see what God is providing in Jesus Christ. And as we read the Old Testament, we need to bear that in mind that everything that we're reading is showing forth the one and the true mediator of Jesus Christ, the mediator and God who He has sent. And it's showing us our need and it's showing us what God is and who God is and it's showing us how to be saved. How to have our hearts longing fulfilled. How we to have love and joy that we do not know as unbelievers. And here we are on the eve of Christmas some 2,000 years after the great historical event of the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet there were thousands of years that preceded His advent here that man was just learning where the law itself was His schoolmaster, just teaching learning that there was a God, that there was only but one God, and that one God was the Creator, and that one God is living, and that one God was righteous, and that one God was just. And so much of what we take for granted today, that fallen man had suppressed in truth and his sinfulness, had no idea who God was and what was required of man. As God began working in redemptive history to unveil the great mystery of godliness, He introduced us to a concept of what would become Messiah. With all that God taught mankind about the Messiah, and particularly chosen people in the Old Testament, everything that we see points toward this one ultimate true Messiah. See, He's teaching us so that when Messiah comes, we recognize Him. When Jesus was born, we might know Him and we might understand the very reason He came. To be the one mediator between God and man. This is the mystery of godliness. So after all, the whole point of redemptive revelation in the Old Testament and taking so many thousands of years to unfold was because of all of the lessons that we needed to learn that we might know when this Jesus comes, when this mediator comes, when Messiah has arrived. The word Messiah 
is the Hebrew Old Testament word of which is synonymous to the Greek New Testament word Christ. The Hebrew Messiah is the New Testament Greek Messiah. When Andrew first encountered Jesus, he ran to Peter and he says in John 1.41, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. By the time Jesus arrived in history, that term was loaded with meaning. And I want us to consider some of those implications in that context of what the people already had well in their understanding of their background and what God had revealed. And that will help us to understand what it means when they, we call Jesus the Messiah. But first of all, the word Messiah is a noun, but it comes from a verb and is connected to the same root, and that verb means to spread a liquid over. To spread a liquid over. As simple as that. It's the word from which we get to anoint. And when we anoint, we spread a liquid over. There were objects that were anointed to sanctify them. Sanctification simply refers to taking a common object, spreading a liquid over it, and taking it and putting it and setting it apart for some particular purpose. Anointed objects were consecrated and dedicated to particular functions. But not only were objects anointed, people also were anointed, usually in some role of the civil or religious leadership for a particular purpose function. It was a symbolic gesture in this anointing, this spreading a liquid over that identified the Holy Spirit. Those people in the Old Testament that were anointed, that liquid was spread over, were primarily prophets, priests, and you can say it, kings. Any person anointed could accurately be called a Messiah. Perhaps with a small letter M. But there were many Messiahs, if you will, in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Messiah, which is the noun uh, noun form of the verb to spread liquid over or to anoint, essentially conveys the same idea of that passive verbal idea. A Messiah is one who has been anointed. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. Prophets were anointed. And these lesser messiahs served a role in redemptive revelation to expose who would be the messiah, who would bear all three of those offices in one person. So they were instructive about the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. Each of these offices of the Old Testament were instructive for us to know and to look for when the one true messiah arrived. See, it wasn't in a vacuum. They they had a lot of context and a lot of understanding and a lot of stuff that they were expected to recognize and see and behold. And so when Jesus comes, they should have recognized this is Messiah, just like Andrew did. And what Peter declared, who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Each of those offices in the Old Testament were instructive. They teach us through various offices borne by various people the nature of the mediatorial role that 
Jesus would have between God and man. So when you're thinking Messiah, when you're thinking Christ, you're thinking mediator. So when we're thinking the term Christ, it's not so much his name as it is his role as mediator, his office, his function. Now, so much was Jesus recognized as the Messiah that later in redemptive history and toward the old in the New Testament, it began to be enfolded right into his name. This is Jesus of Nazareth, but now we call him Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ, encapsulating all of those titles, even with his very name that he was given at his birth. And his function as the Messiah, as the mediator, was to fulfill those operations of prophet, priest, and king to be able to put his hand on the one party and his hand on the other party and bring the two estranged, disputed parties together in the love of God, retaining the very mercy and justice and goodness and graciousness and and righteousness. And there are some principles that pertain to the Messiahs of the Old Testament that are revealed in its coming of Jesus. Let me give you three. First of all, the Messiah was a chosen individual. Every prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament was chosen of God for the office. There was no self-appointments. God did not open up those offices to volunteers, and he dealt very severely with those who tried to usurp those positions and impose themselves in an office if he were not chosen by God to fulfill it. In fact, many of those who actually were chosen for that office really did not even seek to fulfill it. We think of Moses. Oh, (laughs) here was Moses who was a prophet who would then speak of the prophet who would come later, and yet he was also acting as a priest. And Moses says, not me, Lord. I don't speak so good. Go find somebody else. David, pretty content, just tending his sheep in the sheepfold and playing his music and writing his poetry. Very content out there. And he, the next thing you know, he had the liquid being spread over him and he was the next king of Israel. Jeremiah God says, before I formed thee in the womb, I knew you and I called you to be a prophet. So these offices were chosen by God. They were not self-appointments. The second principle is that a Messiah is not only chosen individual, but he was also an accredited individual. He had authority to exercise the very office to which he was appointed. God chose Aaron and his sons to be the priest. And with that selection, he gave them alone the right and the authority to perform the duties that was exclusive to their audience or to their their office. It was later when King Uzziah, who did not have the right and the authority to enter into the temple of God, he did have the right and authority to act as king, but not as a priest. For only one will fulfill the office of king and priest in one person, and only that was saved for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So when Uzziah enters into the temple, the priests literally had the right and the authority to physically throw him out, and God vindicated their authority by striking Uzziah with leprosy. Kings also were given the authority to rule. Even prophets like Nathan could come and confront David, and Elijah could stand up to the kings. So a Messiah was a chosen individual. He was also an accredited individual, but he was also empowered. When that liquid was shed upon the head and anointed, it was an emblem of the Holy Spirit empowering that individual for the very office and the authority that he was given. The Lord has always supplied the power needed for service, and the ultimate agent in that power is the Holy Spirit. Now we see in all these lesser messiahs, these were true. As the ultimate and ideal messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ brought together in a single person the common features shared by all of these messiahs. Even in the New Testament today, these principles are still at play. Even for New Testament ministers. Men who are ordained to the gospel ministry today are those who have been chosen by God for it and called to that purpose. They are not self-appointed men. They are men who also have been given the authority for the office. And they are also men who have been empowered, empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit to fulfill and be successful in what He has called them to do. So even today there are aspects of this that remain because as we look at what Christ has done in the offices of the old and as he's ascended back on high and he's given gifts to men we are to look at the function of these offices and we are to behold what Lord Jesus is doing among his people in the church we learn about his mediatorial work he came to do Now, we're not to cast our eyes upon the men who bear the office, but we are to cast our attention to the function of the office, and we are to see that being fulfilled in the Lord Himself. So as a prophet, Jesus comes, and He fulfills this appointment of the prophet. The prophet was an office of which was a man chosen out from among God's people to represent God to the people. That's why the prophets could speak with the authority, thus saith the Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired, and they can then speak, thus saith the Lord. The priest is a man chosen out from among God's people to represent the people before the face of God. And the king was chosen out from among God's people to rule over them, to govern them, to protect them, provide for them within the kingdom. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem many years ago, he was the ideal Messiah. We know that Jesus was chosen by God for the work as the Savior because the New Testament scriptures verify that over and over. Numerous times Jesus had been called the Son of God who was sent by the Father. Hebrews 5.4 says, And no man takes this honor to himself, 
but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Now that very verse demonstrates the priestly office was only appointed by God, and no man can take that honor to himself. But the very next verse goes on and addends that, and it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said of him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now he's quoting there. He's quoting from Psalm 2. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2, verse 6, to establish God's election of the Son of God to be that mediating priest. This day I have begotten you, the day of begottenness of the Son mentioned in Psalm 2, is not the day in which the Son came into existence, as many Arians and Jehovah's Witnesses would claim or contend, but it is rather what the Hebrews writer has declared, it is the eternal appointment of the Son of God to be the great high priest for God's people. That was His eternal appointment. And that's exactly what the writers of Hebrews declares to us. And so letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we understand that this was not a day of beginning of where one and the Son of God was created. This was His appointment, His eternal appointment, to be the order of a priest after Melchizedek for His people. But secondly, we also know that Jesus was an accredited as His work as Savior. Not only was he chosen by God, he was accredited. He had the authority. He alone was given this authority. And he was alone was given the authority in all of his spheres of prophet, priest, and king. He alone could be the king that could come into the presence of God in the temple. He alone that could offer the sacrifice in the temple and go sit upon the throne. He alone could declare the glory of God and the name of God. In all of that... As John the Baptist, that forerunner of which we also think about this time of the year, as Jesus was coming, he looked and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The very baptism of John, of which Jesus says we must do so to fulfill all righteousness, John, suffer it to be. At the coming up out of the waters, the the dove descends upon Jesus. And this was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And you should have it now, right? (laughs) His anointing. As he begins his public ministry as the priest, the anointing went upon him. The power went upon him. And he was now empowered with the very work he came to do. But in this very empowerment, we hear the voice of God out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he had the accreditation. He had the attestation, the affirmation from God himself, the voice of which we've heard. And the greatest declaration of God's approval of this one Messiah was at the resurrection. The Apostle Paul opening up the opening salutation of the book of Romans says concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That's an astounding statement. Now Paul wrote these words in Romans. 
Quoting again, guess which? Psalm 2.6. As in Romans, as he is declaring so much of this, and, 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 and pardon, I, I was meaning in Acts 13, I, I'm marrying now Romans 1, 3, and 4 with Acts 13 where he quotes Psalm 2, 6. Acts 13, 33 says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that He has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Today you are my son, I have begotten you. Now what Paul is doing is there's a couple of dots that you must understand and see here. The attestation and the affirmation of God as this Messiah was the greatest given by God Himself at the resurrection when God was satisfied to raise Him up from the dead, showing His his accreditation for this one and His approval. So what Paul does as he is speaking in Acts 13... Quoting from Psalm 2.6, he is interpreting it in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then declaring it in Romans 1 that this is the one. That's why Psalm 2 is so packed. That's why I opened up our day with Psalm 2. You'll go back and read Psalm 2. And, and the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 2 to declare the day of God's eternal appointment of Jesus in the order of the priest who would be this mediator. The Apostle Paul in Acts 13 uses Psalm 2, interprets it in the light of the resurrection, of which he then carries over to Romans 1.4 and says, this resurrection is the greatest affirmation that this was the Messiah because God himself raised him up from the dead, showing it to be so. And the last thing, three, in these three characteristics, is we know that Jesus was empowered to carry out the very task of being this mediator. We saw this at Jesus' baptism. And when, when the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus' baptism, this was in fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1, which says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And that is what he has done to us. He has brought forth justice to us. He has satisfied the very thing that we feared. And with all those characteristics of this Messiah, we now are looking for the ultimate one to fulfill it. And in Jesus Christ, in a single person made up of two distinct yet inseparable natures of deity and humanity, He began to fulfill the role of a mediator as He carried out the principal occupations of prophet, priest, and king. He was the ideal prophet, chosen out from among God's people. That's why He was born a Jew. Born of a woman. Born under the law, but yet without sin. And that is why Mary was a virgin. Had not inherited the original sin, if you will. That inherited sin of Adam. Spotless and clean, but fully man. He was the ideal prophet who came, as he says in John 17, I have declared to them your name and will declare it. He was the one who could speak God's word 
to His people. And that is why Hebrews 1 says, God who at sundry times and various spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets in these days has spoken to you by His Son. The prophet. The prophet that Moses spoke about is now here. See, what God needed for man to understand about his position in this dispute is that he cannot simply ignore man's sin. By an act of will, God cannot simply just forgive without the mediator. And man had to be educated. Man had to be told by God himself what the problem was. And Jesus, being fully God, to declare this fully. But he was also the ideal priest. He was chosen out from among God's people now to represent God's people before the face of God. So on the one hand, we see as a prophet, Jesus has his hand on God. And he is addressing the concerns. Now he has his hand on man. Representing man before the the tribunal court of God and before the very justice of God. He offered Himself the very perfect sacrifice of God, and that's why Hebrews 9 tells us, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. As the ideal priest, He was fully man and could represent man before the presence of God completely. In this role, he identified with man's lot. It's the very reason he was baptized with John's baptism into repentance. is not that he needed it, but he identified with man's lot so he could walk in man's shoes, fulfilling the law in his behalf, active obedience, and dying the death upon the cross, passive obedience. I'm throwing those zingers out for my class. So that the very righteousness that He then gave to us was the very righteousness that He earned as a man and then imputed to us. And then the very righteousness that He had, He then gives to us. And the very sin that we had earned, He takes upon Himself. He dies upon the cross so that in Him, we become the righteousness of God in Him. Him who knew no sin now became sin for us. He was able to satisfy and settle the dispute between God and man and satisfy God's justice and still be just. In Jesus, man could be reconciled to God without God's justice being jeopardized, without His righteousness being questioned. He settled the otherwise impossible dilemma for man. He has one hand on God, He has one hand on us, and He is fully God and fully man, and now bringing together the very need that we have for this mediator, great is the mystery of godliness, but Jesus is also the ideal King. As both God and man, He establishes His sovereign and universal rule in heaven and earth, and that is why one of the last words we hear is, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, because The nation that you're in, the kingdom you're in, is over it all. And the nation that I am a part of and sitting on this throne is the eternal kingdom that I was promised to David. And I am reigning over all of the earth. And all power has been given unto me. Therefore, go, church. You are successful in this. I'm empowering you to do this. 
He reigns in the hearts of his people. He reigns over all of the nations. And his reign is triumphant. It is eternal. Nations will come and go. But his church, like his word, will endure forever. This is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the one Job longed for. And to be sure, Job later acknowledged in quite an advanced theology of his time. In fact, one of the most astounding passages in all of the scripture of the hope of our future resurrection is found in this patriarch of Job when he says in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. I think that's one of the most profound passages of the resurrection in the Scripture. So that you, on your deathbed, you know you are about to die and return to dust. And even when the worms eat you up, you can be sure that if you're in Christ, you will one day stand upon this earth in a resurrected body. You will see Jesus the King on this earth and you will see him face to face in your flesh because you know that your Redeemer lives. But he also acknowledged in the 16th chapter... This mediator that he longed for when he says these words, Behold, in the heaven is my witness, and my advocate is in the heights. My middleman is my friend. To God my eyes weep, and he settles quarrels for man with God, even as the son of man for his friend. See, that's our Jesus. That's our Messiah. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he came to do. And that's why he was born and why we celebrate this time of the year. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, open our hearts and our minds to Jesus, the Messiah, this year. And open our eyes to see him in his glory as prophet, priest, and king. Who still reveals to us your name. And declares God's name in the midst of the congregation. Who leads our praise and sings over us as this great prophet. Who is at your right hand making intercession for us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need, knowing He defends us, knowing He intercedes for us, and all of His prayers are answered. And as we behold our great King, the one who sits upon the throne of David in the eternal kingdom that has no end, and His righteous scepter will rule over the heavens and the earth until all that is brought under His footstool, And we come acknowledging His eternal kingdom. And we ask this day You would open our eyes to see all the fullness that in this one mediator, fully God and fully man, 
this mystery of godliness, we may embrace Him more fully in this season. As we come around the table shortly now, we pray that we might have our spirits stretched all the more to capacity that we might obtain and take Him in more fully as we take of something very earthly, bread and wine, but yet identifying with Him in His body and blood, which is seated at the right hand of God in bodily form, yet fullness of the Godhead. And in Him we are complete. We pray, Father, that this season and this Christmas would be all the more meaningful and the Psalms would be our hymns of praise as we look for and see our great Messiah and all that He has come to do is doing and that He will fulfill. It is in His great and strong name we pray. Amen.